Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. I'm Alva. I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we discuss the incoherence of the Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities. And you ask us, what does the polling in Hartlepool mean? The long-awaited Commission on Race and Ethnic Disparities report was released last week and it caused widespread controversy because one of its main findings, which was splashed and briefed ahead of its publication, was that Britain no longer has a problem with institutional racism. Of course, when the actual report was published, there were many recommendations in it that seemed to suggest that there was a problem with, with institutional racism still in this country. And so it seems to be quite a confused document that's caused a lot of anger and you know inspired a great deal of, of heat, but not very much light. Stephen, you were on on holiday when it was released, which actually ironically means that you had quite a lot of time to actually read it and take it in and and avoid the churn of news and the distractions of the briefings last week. So what did you make of it when you were first reading it? As listeners may know, I'm chairing a commission on racial inclusivity within the Jewish community for the Board of Deputies. So I I read it in the order I would like people to read my report. I, I started with the recommendations. We read the recommendations and then I started on the report itself. And I'm not going to lie, my overwhelming reaction to the whole thing was confusion. Those recommendations, parking for a moment the ones which I do not think could be operationalised, are things that you can easily imagine Harriet Harman, Jeremy Corbyn, Joe Sweetman, Theresa May, literally any politician, any mainstream politician of the last 30 years coming out with on this this issue. In terms of the full report, right, the full report does not find that institutional racism doesn't exist. It, yeah, it welcomes and, and affirms the definition of institutional racism used in the McPherson report. And then, as you say, right, it has a variety of recommendations, you know, new things that it thinks that the Care Quality Commission should do, specific asks it has of NHS England, a number of, of reforms it has for the police, and it adopts a variety of positions that, um, you know, if you had said to someone, you know, kind of like you're sort of most kind of, we need a culture war now, member of the 2019 intake, if you'd said, you know, in a month's time, uh, something connected with a political party will recommend this, they go like, oh, that woke Keir Starmer at it again, right? And then you have this, I've, I've been trying to be polite about it because I obviously have this massive 
vested interest in just how much work these things take, even though I, as I say that, I become unsympathetic because I remember I'm doing mine for free and without the machinery of government behind me. But I just found it astonishing how incoherent it was as a document. The slight weird thing about it is that its argument, to the extent that it could be said to have one, is essentially, basically, institutional racism exists, there are real problems in society, but but those damn kids on Twitter don't appreciate enough the achievements of, of my generation. Like, there are policy announcements where you have to go, like, look, actually, this is really about the internal workings of Labour or the Conservatives or the Liberal Democrats or the Greens or the SNP. And there are speeches which do that. But I don't think I've ever read a, a commission report where you kind of realise, look, actually, the thing I found weird sort of watching this from the outside while we are reading the report in a park was, I mean, you have Kemi Badnock in the mail on Sunday going, the recommendations haven't been discussed at all. Now, some might argue that a place, a way for that happened would be for the minister in question to have welcomed or announced any of the recommendations that the government might take forward in that mail article, or indeed for them to track down this apparently in Kemi Badnock world, malign leaker who ad- whose, whose whole media was based around making a claim about what the report... This is something that's slightly strange. It's almost like there are three reports, right? There's report one, which exists a little bit in its foreword and in the media interviews of, of the chair, Tony Sewell. There's report two, which kind of exists in the actual report, which is basically something which has more in common than it has at variance with the approach on equalities and inequalities of all types. Yeah, than than what's on before. And then there's kind of report three, the one being argued about in the media, both in terms of, you know, I have read a number of defences of the report which do not appear to have read anything in the report. Right? They are just describing a, I mean, a much more intellectually coherent document than the one we but also a number of attacks on the report that are describing a much more intellectually coherent document than than we have. And that, I think, has been the main thing I found strange about it, was just what an incoherent read it was. Yeah, I completely agree with you. When you read all of the sort of preamble in the report, the throat clearing, really, if he's putting it politely, basically trying to contort the report into this argument that institutional racism, while, yes, they accept the definition used in the McPherson report after Stephen Lawrence's murder, they accept this this definition, but then they try and come up with other explanations for why, you know, you have these racial disparities in different parts of British public life and, in you know, in health education, in employment, in crime, etc. And then you have the recommendations after that, which undermine a lot of the a lot of that kind of preamble that the report tries to contort itself into. So I agree, it's just not it's not very good. It's sort of like a bad university essay where you lay out all of the things that you want your conclusion to argue. And then and then you just simply cannot conclude what you've written with any coherence, because it doesn't, the facts don't add up to what your what argument you're trying to make. So there's no clear thread throughout it would have been incredibly impressive for the report to actually argue that there isn't systemic racism in this country which kind of means that a lot of the shock and outrage at the pre-briefed lines which suggested that Britain was this model of tolerance that that should be kind of looked up to by other white majority countries and various other lines like that it meant that the outrage towards those things was almost giving it too much credence because it didn't really make that argument you know I'm sure some of the the people who, who you mentioned who've been defending the report 
support and singing its praises for undermining the preoccupations of, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters and so-called sort of idealistic young people in this country. It would have been much more difficult for them to have written a report that would actually have pleased them and, and chimed with their worldview. Because really, like you say, when you read the recommendations, most of them I've read in previous reports on on racial discrimination in this country, you know, I counted 375 recommendations in 10 previous inquiries. And that is no way a comprehensive list um, that haven't yet been implemented. You know, some of those include the McPherson report from 1999. Lots of the recommendations are sensible. They're predictable. They feature in previous reports that have been embraced by by groups that were so outraged by this commission, which means that the main problem is that it's quite unlikely that they're, that they're going to be implemented in any way that, that's actually competent or actually makes a difference, because that is the history of these kind of reviews in this country. And of course, the, the recommendations themselves, like I say, contradict the argument or the top line that the report was trying to push. So, you know, why are there why are there provisions for for making stop and search more accountable if there isn't institutional racism in the way that police forces use stop and search, for example? Why is there the push to apply the Equality Act to potentially discriminatory algorithms if there's no systemic racism, you know, if (laughs) if there's no racism baked into the way that we make algorithms? So it doesn't really make sense. Like you say, it's badly written. It's not coherent. And at the same time, it's also it's a bit of a sad document because to me, it really echoed reports past that haven't been implemented or have only been patchily implemented. And you can imagine these recommendations just staying on paper. Yeah, I I agree with with both of you. I I think that there's been a lot of coverage already about that quite cynical media management. And so I suppose on report one, which is probably the most politically significant stuff in a way how the government was using that the important thing is that it was used to stoke um divisions if you were being negative about it or you know if you if you try to see it from the government's perspective you know to to radically reframe the conversation around race to have a quote-unquote more sort of positive narrative around race in the UK that's sort of report one but then the the substance of the report, I think that, I mean, I agree that the foreword by Tony Sewell and and his framing of it was, again, a bit different to the report itself and that, like, incoherent is the right word for it. But I think the thing that strikes me that I would just add is is the ways in which the report really does fall short and struggles to get over its own worldview and I say that with some sympathy I think because we don't know the views of all of the commissioners involved in this report but certainly from what Tony Sewell has said he like Kemi Badenoch has a particular view of what racism is and isn't and throughout the report it's a kind of an understanding of racism as racial slurs and violence and a sort of overt person-to-person aggression rather than something more structural he like Kemi Badenoch has you know cast out on the idea of institutional racism or the value of that phrase and the way it's bandied around and has you know has sort of called for a more sort of positive discussion about race and more of an emphasis on on family values and the place of the individual in all of this then this report is basically exactly what you would expect from 
people of this worldview trying in good faith to consider how they can improve the lives of people like them so anyone who's black or from any other ethnic minority in the UK looking at those problems in detail and trying to consider how you would improve those things while not really subscribing to the bigger ideas around institutional racism so as you say there's a kind of there's a bit of an incoherence where that worldview comes up against some of the harsher realities of the evidence of structural racism it results in a kind of a strange read because there are points so for example one of the worst examples of racial disparities in the UK is the really disproportionately high numbers of deaths in um, childbirth among black women which is just so much higher than it is among white women and I think that that like that part of the report is really like quite distasteful I mean it, it sort of acknowledges that this is one of the most sensitive areas to discuss with regard to race in the UK. But it really just emphasizes how small these numbers are and, you know, sort of suggests that it's a bit damaging to talk about it too much because it makes people think that there's more of a problem than there really is. When you look at the raw numbers, even though the numbers are all very small, it's, you know, it's single figures for white women and quite high double figures for black women. And the point is that there is provisional research into that. The provisional research seems to suggest that it is a problem of bias among medical professionals, that they think that black women can withstand more pain than white women. And that isn't sort of tackled. And so I feel like that's one of the the sort of saddest and most difficult examples in the report of, of it coming up against a hard example of something that it can't explain. And it just says, oh, this is really difficult and we probably shouldn't talk about it too much and we need more research. And it's true that we need more research on it, but it shies away from the more difficult examples. I did some reporting last week that there was a lot of frustration among people close to the report, as well as lots of people in in the medical profession about the health section of that report, because there is plenty of research. There was a sort of a failure to reckon, I think, with what that link between deprivation and race really means. You know, there was a sort of a strange circularity in the report where if particular problems can be explained by the fact that this affects poorer people more than rich people, then that's a sort of way of explaining away the racial element of it rather than seeing those as inextricably linked. And if particular people are disproportionately deprived, then maybe that is structural racism rather than proof that it isn't. So there's a bit of a gap there, quite a medically very significant one if you're talking about health inequalities. But there are also lots of areas of research which the report was given evidence, including from the Department of Health and Social Care, flagging the research into the more direct impact of of racism on health inequalities so in particular a bit like women in childbirth again but the impact of bias in medical care and the burgeoning evidence that people who aren't white receive a poorer quality of care and it's not not evidenced in terms of the time spent in hospital or reported patient satisfaction but it is evidenced in the outcomes of those people um, in care and also there's quite a lot of research into the the health impact of being exposed to racism. So the the sort of the links between exposure to racism and the the longer term psychosocial stress of that and its biological impacts. And the commission did hear quite a lot of evidence on that, 
according to sources, and it didn't include it in the final report. That would be the real area of concern for me that I kind of initially read it thinking that this was a sort of a good faith effort to look into these problems. Like the commissioners were looking at this in good faith, trying to examine the problems that their communities face and trying to think of practical solutions, but that occasionally their own worldviews just didn't allow them to fully get there. But I think that on the areas where where evidence just wasn't properly considered, I think that I have such big reservations about how this report was conducted and the potential damage that it will do to, you know, to just sort of discard the most inconvenient evidence. I mean, a lot of the recommendations, some of them are a bit banal, but basically all of them are fine. And ultimately, the areas where they couldn't really arrive at a conclusion, they've called for more data, which everyone is already calling for, and it's important anyway. So the recommendations are basically all fine, but I think that the idea that you would conduct a report like that and not consider certain important areas of evidence, or even worse here, important evidence, but not include it in your final findings is, is really, really bad and a bad you know, contribution to the discussion on race in the UK if you're, if you're not able to fully consider all of those things. So the thing is, I don't think this report was the best example of how you could do, like, let's reimagine discourse on race relations and race from the kind of, I was about to say the ethnic minority conservative perspective. But one of the many things about this report, which is strange, is although there are, uh, were other ethnic minorities represented on the panel, the overriding assumptions of this is profoundly like a black conservative document, right? Right down to the slightly weird bit where it kind of talks about issues with accessing apprenticeships. Actually, there is no evidence that, you know, black people access apprenticeships fine. It's British Asians who face barriers to joining apprenticeships. But it's kind of, it's it's so focused on a kind of like, you know, the problem we, with racism is the men and it's violence and it's street slurs and the kids don't appreciate what we do and and the, the men don't stick around enough at home. And right, that, that sort of aspect of, black, small-c conservative thought, right? Then to the extent this report has a through line, it is its through line, right? It's sort of like, you know, I mean, it sort of very arbitrarily kind of goes like, anti-Semitism doesn't count for our purposes. It's like, okay, that's not really clear. And then occasionally does like stuff where it goes like, of course, this is bad for people from a Gypsy, Roma or Irish traveller background. But anyway, moving swiftly on. And then just kind of like, well, yeah, there's sort of occasional moments where it goes, actually the largest, yeah, in terms of the overall, yeah, the kind of the high level categories as the ONS calls them, right? The largest group of people in the BAME group in heavy inverse commas are people who are Asian. But it kind of will occasionally acknowledge that but kind of be like, anyway, back to the thing we actually care about, which is black conservative thought and, and our reckons on it. But the hand that's tied behind the back of this report, and indeed everything the Conservatives have said in this space since Boris Johnson took over, right, is like, take something that it talks about a bit in the report, which is, you know, bias in the hiring processes and, you know, the kind of current sort of thing that the centre-right in particular really likes at the moment, which is name-blind CVs. Now, I think name-blind CVs have a great deal to recommend them if you are Festus Shonabare, graduate of Eton and Oxford. I think they possibly have less to recommend if you are James Arbuthnot Hunt, a British Jamaican living in, in Brixton, or indeed if you are, so this, the report kind of has this sort of quite trite line of, you know, what works best for a black boy in Brixton will be great for a white girl in Barnes. And it's just like, well, is that true? I mean, I think in the name, in the name blind CV thing, I think name blind CVs are fantastic for getting rid of a lot of prejudices, but 
I think they primarily create a level playing field, which we, we know there is huge amounts of data available. We know does not exist between middle and upper middle and indeed very posh graduates, regardless of their ethnicity. And that actually makes perfect sense if your political project is the political project of David Cameron, right? You, know, you broadly just want affluent people in general to, yeah, we basically want, you know, inclusive Thatcherism, right? That makes sort of perfect sense. And in terms of the stuff than, than about this report, which is a bit more new, again, the stuff where I've said, look, you can't operationalize. Like, now, do I think, you know, as, as someone who, you know, started off with one parent and then acquired a, another in a slightly unorthodox way later on, do I think it's, it's better to have, what, two parents than one? Yeah, in general. But do you know what? Many people have tried to track down, yeah, indeed, some of my half-siblings have tried to track down Pop-Pop. And I don't think that a country that is willing to elect a prime minister who like lives in Downing Street with his live-in girlfriend is one which is going to suddenly turn around and be responsive to the government going, oh, actual lo- actually, lone parents are bad. That is just a weird blind alley. But it's a blind alley that I think a lot of black conservatives yeah, uppercase B, lowercase C, would like to go down, right? You know, it's a, it's a you know, obviously, you know, David Lammy is, is firmly left-wing on economics, but he is, you know, kind of, you know, very big into discipline, very critical words about absent, absent fathers, a lot of kind of really thoughtful contributions in this debate. But I think on the one hand, this is a, this is a report where you can, it's kind of haunted by two figures then it can't work out what it wants to be. You have like the David Lammy perspective, you know, deep commitment to economic redistribution, really serious thinking about how the economy works and a variety of other issues. And then you have the kind of Thomas Sowell, a black American conservative writer, in which you talk more about, you know, markets, right? So an argument one conservative was very unhappy about this report made to me is they said, you know, look, there's obviously an institutional problem in the NHS. And they said, you know, when I go on the, the you know, the, the website of, of, of Brooke Taverner, which is a place which makes quite nice machine washable suits, which this MP is very fond of because you can you know, lean down in a farm or kiss a pig without being like, oh God, that's a hundred pounds I'm not getting back. Yeah, they're like, when they go on that website, yeah, there, there are men of every colour modelling it. They're like, you get a minor skin disease and the NHS is just like, here's what eczema looks like on a white person. Good luck finding out if there's anything more serious with you, boyo. You know, you go into a hospital and yeah, there is a real possibility if you are a black woman, your chances of dying are just higher. And there was like, and the problem with this is, I'm the customer of Brook Tavener, and I'm not the customer of the NHS. Now, obviously, I don't think that is the underlying fix, but it is actually a solution. But the problem is, is the Conservative Party for all this report, like, goes, oh, you know, actually, it's about poverty. It's like, lads, poverty's gone up massively in the last decade under you. It's forecast to go up massively under in the next half decade under you. You're not going to tackle this problem either. But on the same hand, they've got this kind of. I was about to say ideological cringe, but this political fear of going, hey, do you know what would be great for like left behind towns, markets? And so what you're left with is this report, which is sort of exists within a tradition that you can identify, you know, from bits of the Labour Party out to kind of, you know, black free market thought. It exists in that tradition, but it doesn't want to make the financial commitment to being in the left half of that. And it's frankly too cowardly to be in the right wing half of that. And so what you end up with is this messy, baggy, deeply incoherent, just ultimately just a bad piece of work. If I filed this to the magazine, I would come back with a note from Tom being like, this is good, but it just needs a couple of revisions. And the revisions would be go home and rethink everything you've written so that this is coherent. And I just think that fundamentally this report is a manifestation of the much wider problem that the Conservative Party has across like the whole policy piece 
which it just doesn't really know what it is anymore, other than being like, lol, lol we won. And it's just like, well, yeah, lads, the majority is so much bigger than it was under David Cameron. But if you think that you're going to have passed even as many bits of meaningful legislation as you did in the first half of the last decade by the end of this parliament, then I have a bridge to sell you, really. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... He asks us. This question is from Ben in London. He asks, is the early polling in Hartlepool showing that we are now living in a two-party system in England? And I should say that Ben is referring to a poll that sort of set Westminster abuzz by salvation, which shows that the Conservatives are set to win the Hartlepool by-election on 6th of May. 49% Conservative, 42% Labour. Alva, what do you think? I mean, I just feel like these constituency polls are fun, but don't really tell us anything. I'm trying to find the exact numbers, but I think, you know, they they had such a small sample size in this poll and basically always do for constituency polling that I think with the best will in the world, this this isn't to discredit the individual pollster, but like with the best will in the world, if you'd happen to stumble across two more Labour voters, then you could plausibly be just, you could be looking at a Labour win in Hartlepool, according to this poll. I don't know if that's exactly right, if you would have needed more than two, but it really is tiny, tiny numbers. So it's just so hard for it to be accurate. I think the the two-party system question is an interesting one because I suppose that is what it's showing. I think that the thing is that probably the answer is that it's a two-party system in individual seats and always has been in that people view the lay of the land insofar as they engage with the the lay of the land in their individual seat it's just the the incumbent and the main contender and no one else which is why you get these hilarious Lib Dem bar charts trying to make the case that they are the main contender because it's the fight between the, the number one and the number two and because of the first past the post electoral system, a lot of people have to vote tactically or you have to convince people that in that system their vote their vote will be worth it. So there are still people who will vote for a party that will never get elected in that seat. But a lot of people think more tactically than that. But then the important thing on top of that is that even if it is a two party system in individual seats, the two parties in question are different in different seats in that the main conservative challenger in some seats 
is Labour, in a lot of them is Labour, but in plenty of them it's it's Liberal Democrats. And in some cases it doesn't really matter. A lot of those are, are very safe Conservative seats, and then some of them are a bit tighter. But you're looking at quite distinct areas of contention. Then I suppose then when you zoom out, it means that in Hartlepool you're looking at a quite direct contest between Labour and the Conservatives, but in other places it's a straighter contest between the Conservatives and the Liberal Democrats or whatever party it might be. I mean, maybe I just love the Lib Dems too much because they're always so nice, but I just think that it's sort of helpful to view on a constituency level it as an almost inevitable fight between two parties and the fight to be that second party, in this, but a sort of two-party system across the board, I'm less convinced. What do you think, Anish? I know what you mean, and I think it's, it's an interesting question about this poll because... Obviously, the headline has been people getting excited about the Conservatives winning another, you know, traditionally Labour seat. But actually, thinking about a two-party system in terms of Hartlepool is is an interesting question because Hartlepool is quite an odd constituency in the way it votes and the way that its voters sort of approach elections has been a little bit strange in in recent years. Well, going back quite quite a long way, you know, famously. It is the place that voted for a man wearing a um, monkey suit to be its mayor. And the council reflects that. The council is an odd hodgepodge of independents and sort of defectors from previous parties who decided to join the Brexit party once they'd been elected. But actually, you know, when people say it's got a Brexit party council, that's not really the case because they weren't running on that ticket when they were voted in in the, in the most recent local elections. So there is a kind of indes- independent streak to voting in, in Hartlepool which is undermined by this one poll or so what the poll suggests is going to happen. I think it will tell a wider story about England and English politics during a pandemic if this poll reflects in any way the actual result of that by-election because it may go to show that the vaccine bounce that the Conservatives have been enjoying recently and also the difficulty of any party, including the Labour Party, any opposition party of trying to get some airtime, trying to get some space in the kind of vacuum that, that coronavirus politics has left, it shows that difficulty because you know, if there's going to be anywhere where an independent might do better or a third party or a smaller party might do better, it would be Hartlepool, you know, in a by-election because of the the history of the way that voters approach elections and local elections in, in that area. And so I think it will tell a wider story about how crisis events and sort of national dilemmas and also the kind of hegemony of coronavirus press conferences and that kind of comms, the kind of public health comms has benefited the ruling party and, you know, maybe to an extent Keir Starmer's Labour Party to to the extent that it's made it very difficult for the Lib Dems and and the other smaller parties as well. So it will reflect that reality if it turns out to be anywhere near a reflection of what actually happens. And what does that mean then? What does that mean for the, the rest of the local elections on the 6th of May? And what does it mean for for elections to come? Will that two-party dominance die back as the pandemic, hopefully, goes into sort of recovery mode? Or are we stuck with this new reality where, you know, there's going to have to be public health announcements regularly anyway, while we try to recover from coronavirus and, and its impact on, on the economy as well as health? Is that going to bake in a dominance for this two-party view? So I, I completely agree with all of the, as anyone who's had to live with my grumbling on Twitter for the last 
however many years, I have always been persuaded by the... So the argument that both political parties, sort of senior number of people made in the run-up to 2015, is they didn't think you could do reliable constituency-level polling. The central problem is getting people who aren't too politically involved, right? In order to run focus groups, you have to pay the participants. Yeah, because that's the only way that you get people who aren't sufficiently politically engaged and they go, yes, I can name half the cabinet, et cetera, et cetera. And although there's been some changes and, and so, you know, some of the people who, who work for Jeremy Corbyn very much did think constituency polling was useful. Some of them thought it very much wasn't. There are similar divides within the leader's office now. There have been a whole variety of views on that question since 2015. Obviously, been a lot of changes in personnel in the Conservative Party. But I've never really thought that they could be that reliable. I think we had a pretty good demonstration of that in 2019, where you kind of saw that manifesting itself in lots of ways. Right? Vernon Coker undoubtedly does have a personal vote, did have a personal vote. Obviously, he's in the House of Lords now, so it doesn't matter. You'd be in Gedling and you'd meet people and they'd go, oh, yeah, Vernon taught my my mum or my aunt or he taught me, so I'll probably vote for him. And that personal vote does explain why he only lost by 600 votes when you know, generic Labour candidates throughout the area yeah, we're doing. If you just if you had like you know kind of like you know Mr. L. Abel as the candidate in Gedling, they would have done worse. Now the Salvation poll of, of Gedling showed him winning, and I think that's because what constituency polls consistently do is they show people who are more political. And I think in in the two constituency polls we've had of well, we've had one MRP and we've had one constituency poll. I think they both show that in different ways. One which shows Labour winning, one which shows Labour losing. But because you can you can either go, oh come on, look. Between them, the Greens, the Liberal Democrats, the various independents running on the centre and centre-left and on the left are not, between them, all polling below the margin of error, right? Yeah, they're all polling a statistically insignificant number, right? The Labour Party is not going to successfully squeeze all of those votes down. That just shows that there are too many political people in the sample. The other way you can look at it is you can go, come on, the Brexit party vote is not all going to coagulate behind the late, the Conservative Party. There are too many political people in the sample. But broadly, what both these polls shows, what I think is the case, yeah, has been the case since you can either count it, you know, from June 2017 or from June 2016. But since the Brexit vote and the 2017 general election, right, a combination of events, I think means we are in a two party system in England, for the most part. Yes, there's kind of a vestigial rump of Liberal Democrat targets where the party is sort of too strong organisationally to quite die out. And then there were the sort of circumstances of Brexit. But I I mean, I know it's going to make a lot of our our listeners very unhappy, but I think it is it is not proven, for example, that in, say, Isha and Walton, where the Liberal Democrats came very close to winning, that they won't simply fade away now that Brexit is not an election moving issue. It's not proven that St Albans, you know, a very swingy seat, right? A seat which has had MPs of all three parties within the last 20 years, that a minor Labour revival doesn't see Labour come second and the Conservatives win it next time. And I think, you know, we, we shouldn't draw any conclusions from this poll beyond saying this confirms what we kind of already know, which is that the Brexit party's collapse probably net benefits the Conservatives. The Labour Party have gained votes since 2019, and there's also the more favourable national environment created by the vaccine bounce. And there's the basic trend that opposition parties very rarely lose by-elections. And we kind of don't really know which one of those, which of those four things is going to matter most in Hartlepool. But I think we are now in a, a much more two-party system. It's desirable from an anti-conservative perspective for that not to be the case, for the Liberal Democrats to continue to revive, for them to win it, yada, yada, yada. But I think there's quite a low chance of that happening. And so I think you then do end up in a situation where 
it does call into question the sort of overarching Labour strategy of basically everyone in the Labour Party, all three of the leadership candidates, everything the Labour Party has done since 2017, which is going, okay, how are we going to get some more small towns to vote for us? Because that is kind of predicated on the idea that something, some magic happens, and the, the Liberal Democrats are the thing which defeats the Conservative in suburban London, leafy bits of posh northern rural constituencies, etc, etc, right? It's all predicated on the idea magic happens and another party does that thing. And also the the combined Brexit Conservative Party score doesn't create this huge problem, not just in the seats that they weren't a factor and that's already happened in, but a huge problem in that undertow of 20 to 30 seats where, assuming the Brexit Party splits two to three, conservative to Labour. And so I think if you are, as I believe, in a two-party system, then the Labour Party is going to have to reinvent itself as a more small L liberal party, because if the Lib Dems aren't going to start winning places in Cornwall and Devon again, and the Labour Party is going to continue to face this sort of huge conservative Brexit vote, and it can't, you know, then it just gains, but it just bashes up against the wall of, it got to get votes from somewhere else. And I do think that is probably going to be the story of the result. I still think just base rate going to base rate. Then what will happen is, is then Labour will hold on to it. Uh, just like with Peterborough, with Stoke, with Darlington, with Haywood and Middleton, with all of these by-elections. And that will, everyone will overcorrect to being like, there's no long-term problem here. It's all <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think we have entered a, a two-party system in England for the most part. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shekelian, and my colleagues Alva Ray and Stephen Bush. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening. Please leave us a review and don't forget to subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.